uh, L. Ron Hubbard, it was the uh, famer, famous founder of Scientology. And if you ever go down Hollywood, you will see that uh, there are people who have these wearing red shirts and uh, they're trying to promote this religion called Scientology. But he famously said that if you want to get rich, then you must start a religion. That's writing science books doesn't get someone rich, but what gets people rich is by starting a religion. In 2014, it was reported that the Church of Scientology was worth more than $1.2 billion. In fact, if you watch any of their videos and the videos that they have introducing you to the Church of Scientology, one of the things that they constantly repeat is that the Church of Scientology is the fastest growing religion in the world. Is the fastest growing religion in the world. In all of my study in religions out there, the Church of Scientology is by far the weirdest. It is by far the strangest, and it is by far amongst the most dangerous. It's a religion, like all other religions, that are based upon lies and deception. And it all begins with their founder, L. Ron Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard was an author of science fiction and fantasy stories, who in 1950 wrote a book titled Dianetics, The Modern Science of Mental Health. Now, to summarize the book would be too tedious for me to explain, and it would be probably too hard for you to understand. But in a nutshell, one can have peace with themselves by their own work and effort. One can have peace with themselves, not necessarily with God, but with themselves through peace or through work and effort. We, as Christians, know that to be false. That we can't have peace with ourselves, let alone peace with God, through our own work and effort. But L. Ron Hubbard made his name off of a bed of lies. Here are just a few. He said once that I happened to be a nuclear physicist. The truth is, Hubbard flunked both high school and college. After his sophomore year at George Washington University during which he failed a course in atomic physics. Hubbard claimed that he traveled to India and Tibet, but the truth is Hubbard never traveled to those countries at all. Hubbard claimed that he was a pioneering brainstormer at the dawn of the aviation in America. But the truth is that Hubbard flew gliders in the early 1930s and was never associated with the Wright brothers. Or anyone else. Hubbard claimed that he created the U.S. Air Force. The truth is that in 1941, Hubbard was the one of the only people that offered free advice to government officials. But he didn't create the U.S. Air Force. And lastly, Hubbard claimed to have been awarded 21 or 27 combat medals in World War II as a Navy lieutenant. But the truth is, Hubbard never served a day in combat and was never awarded any combat medals. Friends, a deceiver is a dangerous person, but a self-deceiver 
is a sick person. A liar is a dangerous person, but the one who wholeheartedly believes their own lies is a person who truly is walking in darkness. Friends, what about you? We all have lied before, but if someone was to put a mirror in front of you, what would you see? What person would you be looking at? Would you see someone who walks in the light or one who lives in the darkness? One who deceives others, but also deceives yourself. Would you see someone who professes to be a Christian, but lives like a devil? In our verses today in 1 John, we want to explore what it means to walk and live in the light. What it means to profess that you're a Christian, but also act and walk like a Christian. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the first letter of John. 1 John. 1 John. And if you're there, and when you get there, please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 John. First John, uh, last week we were in verses 1 through 4, now we will be in First John verses 5, uh, all the way to chapter 2, verse 6. The word of the Lord says this, This is the message we have heard from him, and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as is, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from our sin, all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sin, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. Chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walked. Saints, you may be seated. And to help us understand these um, wonderful texts of scripture, I just have three points I would like for us to consider. The first is true Christians walk in the light. That true Christians Walk in the light. The second point, true Christians confess their sins. True Christians confess their sins. And third, true Christians count on Christ. True Christians count on Christ. And I'll be reiterating those points as we go along. But let's consider the first point. True Christians walk in the light. 
true Christians walk in the light. And as we are moving along in our verses this morning, what I want you to do is I want you to put a mirror in front of your face and examine yourself in light of what John is saying to these struggling Christians. True Christians walk in the light. We begin John chapter 1, verse 5. In the same way, we begin chapter 1, verse 1. Look at me at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. John begins by stating the central message. There is something that John wants to convey that his readers must hear and must get correct. And that central message is that God is light. That God is light. But notice he says, this is the message that we have heard from him. That this is the message that we have heard from him. That this central message that John proclaims to these struggling Christians, that John is telling us is not his own theory, is not his own philosophy, is not his own idea. It's not a message that originates in the minds of men, nor is it a message of fairy tales or old uh, uh, fables. But it is a message that they have heard from him. Who is the him? The him is Jesus Christ. The him is the word that became flesh. This message finds its origins in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Christ. Therefore, this is a divine message because it comes from a divine person. This is a message that is to be pre- uh, preached and proclaimed, but also to be recited, to be memorized, and to live in light of. The central message is simply this that God is light, and in Him, There is no darkness at all. John here sets forth to his readers who God is in his eternal being. If someone was to ask John, John, explain to me who God is. He would say, God is light. And in him, there was no darkness at all. Now, why does John feel the need to share this? Because in John's day, many believed in Greek and Roman mythologies. And they believe that God was a mixture of darkness and light. And this is what the heretics in John's day were teaching. Remember those, those Gnostics that we heard about last week who were saying that the physical body is bad, but spirit is good. The Gnostics were dualists. And what I mean by that is they believed in two gods. They believed in a good God, and they believed in an evil God. And these two gods were locked in an eternal struggle. There was a a battle going on between these two gods, between a, a good God and a bad God, an evil God. This was the teaching that was leading many Christians away from the faith. If not, they were at least confusing many Christians. This is why John, from the very outset, is getting at the heart of the matter. 
that this central message that God is light, and in him there was no darkness at all, that there is no mixture in God, that he's not sometimes evil and sometimes good. He's not sometimes dark and sometimes light. There's no such thing as two gods, but there is one God who is light. Now, there's a threefold meaning to this truth by John. First, when John says that God is light, he's explaining who God is in his being. The nature of God, the essence of God. God is light. He is pure light. There is no darkness found in him at all. He is who James says, the father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The fact that God is light with no mixture points to the fact that God is unadulterated deity. That there is no mixture in God. God is complete. God is perfect. He is, as the old boys would say, he is pure being. He's purely actual. There is no becoming in God. There is no potential for God to be something that he currently is not. He can't be heightened. He cannot be lessened. He is nothing but himself. As he says to Moses in the burning bush, he is his own definition. He is I am. He is a most pure spirit without body, parts, or passions. Which means that all that God is, he is. That all that God is, he is. That all that is in God is God. That he has no ingredients. He's not made up of this or that, but only himself. You don't take the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God, the providence of God and the blessedness of God, and you don't put them in a blender, shake well, and then you get God. He's not composed of attributes like we are. He's not composed of existence, for he is his very own existence. He's not composed of essence, for he is his very own essence. He's not composed of attributes in addition to his essence. For example, we have the attribute of love, do we not? It's something that's given to us in addition to our humanity. But that love can very well be taken away. You guys are all, can testify to that. You might have said in your lifetime, there, man, I, I remember when John used to be so loving. But now he's not. But with God, he is love. He is his own attributes. His attributes are one with his essence. They're one with his nature, which means that God's love is eternal, unchangeable, self-sufficient, and perfect. Now, I know that's very strange, right? But it would be strange if God was not strange. It would be very weird if God was not weird. But this is how we must talk about God, for although we can't understand him who he is in his being, we must not and fancy him to be what he is not. That might be one of the problems, or that is one of the problems in churches today. That they lessen God's being to one who is similar to us. And they heighten us to liken us to who God is. 
But here at the very outset that John wants to make clear that Jesus Christ or that God, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are pure light. And in them there is no darkness at all. But secondly, when John says God is light, it speaks of intellectual truth. That Proverbs 6.23 says, For these commands are a light lamp. This teaching is a light. Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp and a light. Here, light is a metaphor for God's word. And the constant theme of God's word is this, that God's word is truth. 2 Samuel 7.28, You are God, and your words are truth. Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your truth, of your word is truth. Just as there is no darkness found in God's being, there are no lies found in his word. And thirdly, God as light represents moral purity. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. And the basic idea here is that not only does light illuminate our minds, but also illuminates the path that we are to walk in. In John chapter 3, verses 9 through to 20, John says, this is the verdict, that the light has come into the world, but the men love darkness instead of the light because of their deeds or evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Saints, we are commanded to walk in God's word, for it is the true path for our feet. It is the roadmap. It is the guide for Christian living. God is light. In him, there is no secrecy. There is no hiding in the shadows. He is the fullness of truth and the perfection of moral purity. And because we have been the ones who have been brought into the light by his spirit. We are not to walk in darkness. This is what John says in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, if we say we believe in God and we know God, then we don't walk in the darkness. We don't walk down our own roads. We don't live a life that contradicts our profession of faith. And saints, isn't this the biggest problem of so many called believers today? A profession that Jesus is Lord. A confession that Jesus is Lord, but practically living like I'm Lord. Christians who behave like demons. And this is what John is getting at when he says in verse 6, if we walk in darkness, then we lie and do not practice the truth. In essence, what John is saying is we deceive ourselves. We are like that figure who I use an example. We are like L. Ron Hubbard, believing our own lies, deceiving ourselves. But notice, saints, John uses the word practice. He uses the word practice, that we do not practice the truth if we walk in darkness. And that is to say that a Christian, if he or she is truly a Christian, is a doer of God's word. Simple as that. That a Christian 
if you are truly a Christian, practices your Christianity. And the guide that God has given to us and how we are to live out and practice our Christianity is his word. God's holy law is to be our guide to holy and righteous living. Now, as soon as one says that God's commands, commandments are to be a light to our path, that God's word is to dictate how we are to live our lives, objections are quickly raised. In fact, I remember preaching a sermon on the Lord's Day Sabbath, that how we are to treat the Lord's Day very different than how we treat Monday through Saturday. That it is a unique day that God has given to a unique specific people. That we are to worship God both publicly and privately. That what we do on Monday and what we do on Saturday are not the things we are to do on Sunday. But it's the Lord's day. He has given us six days. We give to him one. And I got a lot of heat in that sermon. And it was mainly because people don't want to live according to God's word. And they don't want to live according to God's holy law. In fact, I remember I said that those who forsake the gathering of the saints, I would be weary to call them even Christians. That if you have no biblical reason for not gathering with the saints, and if you cannot defend your biblical reasoning for not gathering with the saints, then I don't know if you're saved or not. Now that might sound harsh, but as Pastor Antonio has told me, what does a Christian look like that does not come to church Sunday morning and evening? What type of Christianity is that? When someone does not gather with the saints, when they are to gather with the saints. What type of Christianity life is that? It's those ones who confess the truth, but pick and choose which parts of the truth that they want to obey. Actually, you know, I find it quite interesting when Christians have a hard time obeying God's word and have a hard time hearing from the preacher that you must obey God's word and you must obey his law. When we have no problem obeying our stomach when we're hungry. That we have no problem obeying football when the Super Bowl is on. That we have no problem obeying our family traditions while ignoring God's plain command that we are to gather with the saints when they meet. We owe our allegiance to everyone in this world except to God, do we not? There are some Christians who want to live under God's law so bad that they use their favorite minister and preacher as an excuse to not obey what God has commanded. I've been there. I've done that many times. That John Piper believes this, so I'm going to believe this. That Paul Washer believes this, so I'm going to believe this. Friends, we have to be objective Christians. Meaning that we have to think for ourselves. 
that we have to use the Holy Spirit that God has given to us and not depend merely on the shoulders whom we stand upon, but what God has revealed in his word. We find every excuse not to obey God's word, do we not? Every excuse in the book. I'm too tired. The kids are too much of an extraction. Uh, dis, um, dis, uh, distraction. I don't know what part of the Bible I should begin with, so I'm not going to read it all. I don't know how to pray, so I'm not going to pray at all. I'm just not motivated. You see, friends, you will not be judged by the amount of truth that's in your head, but by the amount of truth that you lived by. Yes, the Christian is to be theologically precise, but that theological precision is not necessarily the basis of your salvation. But you are to walk in the light. That what you know in your head is to see itself out in your steps. You are to walk in the path that God has laid out before us. What's the path? God's word. He has laid out in his word how we are to walk, how we are to live, conduct ourselves. That the amount of truth that we live by is how we are to live and how we are to walk and think about the Christian life. Not necessarily how much we know. That we can't say we believe in the righteous one and not walk in righteousness ourselves. But what... What happens if we do walk in God's light? What, what, what is the great reward and prize if we do walk in God's light? John says in verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now it's interesting that John speaks of fellowship with God in verse 6, but then he speaks in verse 7 of fellowship with each other. And what John is saying is a point that we made last week, that fellowship with God includes fellowship with the family of God. That fellowship with God includes fellowship with the family of God. That when God adopts you as a son and daughter, he doesn't leave you as an only child, but he adopts you into a family of believers. That Christians are not to be lone rangers in this life. But they are to have others who help them in their weak spots, in their blind spots, who, who put up the stop signs when needed, who put up the yellow, uh, the yellow light to tell them to slow down, to put on their headlights when they are walking in darkness. You see, saints, the intended goal of the pr- Christian proclamation is that we all might be gathered into one fellowship, which is based on our fellowship with God. Jesus says not merely to make converts, but to make disciples. That we in this church, when we go out to evangelize, we're not interested in saving people, although we want to, but we want to get people inside the church. Because fellowship with God also includes fellowship with believers. They can't be apart from one another. That just as you love God, then you must love God's people. And saints, as we close this point, John's central message is simply this. 
that true Christians don't mingle, they don't flirt, they don't walk in the darkness. If you are truly in the light, then you don't walk the path of darkness. Let's consider the second point, which is true Christians confess their sins. After John has explained what it means to walk in the light, he now explains what it means to walk in the darkness. And he takes it a step further. He says in verses 8 through 10, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we, have, if we say we have sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. Now, here in just three verses, the Apostle John sets before us the human condition. It's, it's almost as if he's giving us an analysis report of the effects of the fall. Like, what happened after Adam fell in the garden? And he does so in two ways. He says in verse 8 that we have sin, and in verse 10 that we do sin. That we have sin, in verse 10 that we do sin. Let's consider these two aspects. Again, he says in verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, who is John uh, appealing to here? Are those people who believe that they're not morally uh, incorrupt or corrupt? As if these people have not been infected with Adam's sin. That sin is everyone else's problem but their own. And this might be what many of the heretics were teaching in their day. That's perhaps through enlightenment that they thought that they've achieved some sort of sinless perfection. That sin was above them. That they were beyond sin. Or simply that sin was an illusion. Sadly, this is much of what the world thinks today concerning sin. One spiritual guru named Deepak Chopra, who Oprah Winfrey heralds as one of the greatest spiritual mentors on the planet today... He says this on his website, sin isn't a fact of human nature, it's an idea. It would benefit the world as a whole if every society would move past the toxic idea of sin to a new idea. That sin is not something that we inherited from our first father, Adam. But it's simply an idea and a concept to keep people weighed down. Others will say that sin is not the issue. It's the neighborhoods I grew up in. It's the way my parents raised me. It's my alcohol addiction. It's my porn addiction. It's my pride. That's the real problem, not my sin that I have inherited from Adam. Saints, if you think that your problem is everything but sin that you have inherited in Adam, then what John says is you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. That if you think that your upbringing, if you think that your drug problem, if you think that's your job, your lack of money is the problem, then what John says here is that you deceive yourself and that the truth is not in you. Because if there's anything that the Bible is clear on, is that we all have a sin problem. The Bible is crystal clear. John, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
Titus chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their conscience are defiled. Titus 3, 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated, hated by others and hating one another. Proverbs 21, 10, the soul of the wicked desires evil. Saints, read Romans 3. It's all there. The problem is you're a sinner. Now, your upbringing, your drug problem, your pride can only bring more clarity to that which is already there. It only exposes more the weight and how far you have fallen in Adam. But the problem is that you are a sinner that needs to be saved by God's grace. That's we all have fallen in Adam. In a nutshell, the problem is yourself. But the hard part is, and a problem with that is, none of us want to admit that. That none of us want to admit that the problem is ourself. That it's everyone else but us. What happens when you argue with your wife? No, I didn't say that. No, I I, I didn't do that. Saints, those who walk in the light are those who admit that they have walked in darkness. Are the ones who admit that they have failed. That they are a sinner. And what John is saying is in order for us to have fellowship with God that we must first start with ourselves. This is what John, why John says in, verse, in the next verse, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The sinner must confess before the Lord. He must admit to his, his sin. To confess before the Lord simply means to amen everything that the Bible says that you are. That's what it means to confess your sins. Is to say, yes, God, I am that. And so much more. As the Puritans say, confession and repentance is the vomiting of the soul. It's spewing out everything that's evil inside of you. We must admit our sin We must amen all of what the Bible says that we are. And friends, the glorious promise is that the Lord is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you repent, the Lord is just and faithful. Isaiah 1, chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow, Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four: For I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sin no more. Yes, the constant theme of the Bible is that we are sinners in Adam, but the constant theme of the Bible is that we have a God who is just and faithful, who will forgive us of our sin. The result of confession based upon self-evaluation is forgiveness in Christ. It's promised to you. Secondly, when John says in verse 10 that if we have sinned, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. Now, first, 
John dealt with the denial of human sinfulness. Now he deals with the denial of the practice of sin. That yes, you might deny that you are not a sinner in Adam, but now he's getting at those who deny that they have never sinned at all. In essence, John is speaking to those who say that they have never committed one single sin. I remember when I was younger in the faith, I might have not been Christian, I don't know, but we were doing a a men's Bible study. And there was a gentleman there who was an elder of the church, and he was only an elder because he was the oldest man of the church, in the church. And I remember that we all went around. Pastor Antonio said, let's go around and let's confess our sins, let's confess the things that we are struggling with, the things that we are dealing with. And he was sitting right next to Pastor Antonio, and Pastor Antonio went to his right and said, well, let's start with you. And he said, I'm just here to listen. I want to hear what others have to say. And then based on what others say, then I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll chime in. Now, looking back on that, and even then, I was so furious. Because who do you think you are to not tell others what's going on with you? Are you perfect? Have you obtained some sort of sinlessness? That everything from top to bottom in your life is going okay? John Calvin, in book one of his institutes, says this better than anyone I've read. We always seem to ourselves just and upright, wise and holy, until we are convinced by clear evidence of our injustice, vileness, folly, and impurity. As long as we do not look beyond earth, we're quite pleased with our own righteousness, our own wisdom and virtue, and address ourselves in most flattering terms and seem only less than demagogues. We're flatterers, are we not? And we think that we have it all together. And friends, this is true of every single one of us, that you're either the person who sins, but since it's not a big sin, then you think you're okay. Or you're the person that sins and knows that you're going to commit that sin again and again. So what's the use of asking for forgiveness? Or you're that person who repents of your sin, but only when you sin and never in the between time. It's only when you sin when you talk to God. It's only when you messed up is when you pray. If you're the first person who believes that there's no such, who, who, who thinks that, well, I haven't committed a big sin, then, then I'm okay. I don't need to ask for forgiveness. Friends, let me tell you that there's no such thing as big and small sins. We're not Roman Catholics. Sure, we can distinguish between which sin is more wicked. We can distinguish between which sin is more vile, which one is more, more uh, uh, dangerous. But all sins are the same in their effect. That all sins deserve God's judgment and wrath. The murderer deserves the same justice and wrath as the one who disobeys God's law, as the liar, as the thief. If you're the second person who continues to sin without ever repenting, and quite honestly, then you need to ask if you are really of the faith. You have to really ask if you are truly saved by Christ. Because essentially, you're loving your sin more than you're loving your Christ. 
If you say that, I'm going to keep sinning, so what's the point of repenting? Then who do you think Jesus Christ is? And what do you think he has done for you? You might think that your daily giving into sin is too big for God to forgive. Friends, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Is there any sin too big for him to forgive, not to forgive? He is full of love and compassion. Friends, if if that is you, then you must repent of your sins. We must not sweep our sins under under the rug. Even if you know that you're going to commit that sin in the very next hour. You must repent. The psalmist says in Psalm 7:12, if one does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. And he has bent and strung his bow. Forsake your sin if you are in Christ. I plead with you. Cut off your right hand, pluck out your right eye. Friends, it is far better to enter heaven with missing part, body parts than enter hell whole. I've, said, I've used this quote before, but it probably is my favorite quote concerning sin. Samuel Rutherford says, They that count little of sin count little of God. If you count little of sin, then you count little of God. The sinner who takes sin into his bosom is cruel to his maker. If Christ be your husband and you his wife, then slin slew your husband. Will the wife love the knife that cut her husband's throat? Will you love the sin that put your Christ on the cross? And if you're the third person who only repents after you've sinned, but never before and after, you know those people that only talk to God when they pray for their food or or when they commit a sin. Friends, sin is not simply what you do in action, but it's also what you thought and desired. Jesus makes this clear in Matthew 5, verses 27 to 28. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That sin is not simply something that you do in action, but it's what you think. It's what your heart desires. You see, friends, sin is never first committed in action, but it's always first committed in thought and will. That's where sin begins. This is why daily repentance is at the heart of the Christian life. Martin Luther says uh, in his 95 Theses, the first Theses, he says, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repent is not something that you do when you sin, but it's something that you do constantly in your life. Every single day, every single hour if you have to. Before we close this point, I just have two suggestions for those of us who sin, struggle with sin. In Deuteronomy 22.8, God says, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house, if anyone should fall upon it, from it. The roofs of an Israelite's home were flat. They would hang out there. They would eat there. They would talk to one, uh, uh, one another from their roofs. And God commanded that fences and walls be built around the edges of the roof so that no one will fall and die. 
And likewise, saints, we are to build walls and fences around our own lives so we don't fall into sin. We are to build a defense. We are to build high walls and barriers so we don't fall into sin and eternal death. One of the ways we can do this is by joining the local church, but also involving yourself in the regular rhythm and life of the church. If you do not come to church, then how in the world are you going to stop yourself? How in the world are you, are you going to have, are people going to ever uh, help you in your sin? If you don't come to church, then what stop signs do you have? What red lights and yellow lights do you have to help you not commit sin? And secondly, if you're struggling with sin, the one thing that you must do is understand who you are. And what I mean by that is having understanding of your own heart, that you naturally have a corrupt heart. Now, that's not an excuse, though. As one member who used to say, he's no longer here, I tell my wife all the time, you married a sinner. What is that? You're using that as an excuse. Yes, you are a sinner, but sin does not define who you are. You are in Christ Jesus. But also, inherently, you are not strong. That in and of yourself, that you cannot defeat sin. You think you can, but you cannot. You think all of your self-help books can help you, but they cannot. There's nothing, no amount of literature, no amount of sermons, no matter how many times me or Pastor Antonio come up here and beat you up with God's word. It's not going to help you. The Holy Spirit is the one that helps you. He is the one that is your provider, your comforter, the one you are to lean upon. Jonathan Edwards says, possibly you may... Be confident of your own strength. And may think with yourself that you are not in danger. That there is no temptation in these things. But what you are able easily to overcome. But you should consider that the most self-confident confident are most in danger. The ones who think that they are the strongest are the ones in fact are the weakest are the ones who are in the most danger. Yes, if you have a problem with smoking, don't hang around people who smoke. If you have a problem with cursing, don't go to your friend's house who, when you know, they, when you go down there, they curse like a sailor. Just as if we wanted to become better chefs, then we watch those who cook. If we want to become better Christians then we involve ourselves in the lives of other Christians. And the way that we do that is by the local church. So what if you overcome one temptation? Don't throw yourself a party. Don't pat yourself on the back. The temptation might have not presented itself correctly. That same temptation might come next week in a more nicer way in a red bow saints 
It's the ones who know their own hearts are the ones that are always on guard and aware of their weaknesses. They're aware of who they are, that their heart is desperately wicked, and at every moment it can deceive them. Know your surroundings. Know your weaknesses. Practice self-control. Friends, as we close this point, what John is essentially saying in verses 8 through 10 is fellowship with God. And hear me now, that fellowship with God, with the God of light, does not require sinless perfection. It requires, rather, honesty about your sin. I'm not teaching that you are to be perfect. But you are to be honest that you're not perfect. You are to be honest that I have sinned. Those who admit and confess that they have sinned are the ones who walk in the light, not the ones who say, I have never have sinned and sin is not my problem. It's those who confess their sins and know that they are in dire need of help are the ones who truly have fellowship with God and fellowship with God's people. Let's consider the last point, and that is true Christians count on Christ. True Christians count on Christ. Verses 1 through 6 of chapter 2 say this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, but not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And this we know, that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. That whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Here, I want us to notice just three quick and simple things that John says. A warning, an example, and an exhortation. A warning, an example, and an exhortation. First, he gives a warning in verses 3 through 4. He says that, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. This is the point that we have touched on on our first point. That Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. We know this by experience, do we not? What do our wives tell us all the time? And if you love me, prove it. If you truly say that you love me, then show itself in action. Let me, let me see you demonstrate your love for me. You see, saints, love, if it truly is love, needs to show itself in activity. It needs to show itself in demonstration. And that is the way, and what Christ is saying here, and what John is saying, is that the way we demonstrate our love for Christ is by obeying what he says. It's simply or simpler said than, do, uh, than what we've been doing, is it not? It's hard to obey God's word, many of us claim. But Christ says, if you truly love me, then it will show itself out in how you walk. John makes it clear in verse 4, if you say, I know him, 
but do not keep his commandments, then you're a liar. What's the one thing that we all don't want to be known as? A liar. Someone who does not tell the truth. Question, friends. Is this statement, this phrase, true of you? If you were to evaluate your own life, what do you see? Do you see hypocrisy? Or do you see consistency? Is your love for God in tongue only, but in deed and in truth? Do you see yourself walking in the truth? Or simply, are you living a lie? Now, please note that I'm not saying that we must obey God's word in order for us to be saved. But rather, the saved obey God's word. You don't obey God's word to be saved, but rather what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be saved, is that you obey God's word. And that is what John is saying here. Secondly, John gives us an example. Verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That he is our Lord Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who is not only the sum and substance of our salvation, but he is our great example of Christian living. It is Jesus Christ who models for us how we are to live by faith, for he lived by faith. He modeled for us how we are to manage our emotions, for he did that. He showed us what true prayer looks like. He taught us how to pray. He showed us what true obedience to God looks like. And what John is saying here is that the true children of God walk like the Son of God. True children of God walk like the Son of God. And third in closing, John gives us an exhortation. He says in verses 1 through 2, 1 and 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Here John, for the first time in this letter, is exposing, he's showing his pastoral heart. He calls them little children. And he gives them the reasons of why he's writing such things. Yes, John is coming quite hard on these Christians, is he not? But he says, I'm writing these things so you do not sin. It is their spiritual soul that John is most interested in. The word of encouragement that John gives is Jesus Christ. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, but not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. He says that Christ is our advocate, which means that Jesus pleads our defense in the courtroom of God's justice. That Jesus Christ is our legal representative. That he goes before us and he pleads before the Father. He calls Christ the righteous, which means that Jesus is our righteous advocate. That he pleads our case before the Father with, uh, by his own righteous and spotless sacrifice. He doesn't get on bended knee to plead before the Father, but rather his presence alone pleads our case before the Father. And lastly, John refers to Christ as our propitiation, which simply means that on the cross, Jesus Christ turned away God's wrath. 
That's on the cross. God's justice was satisfied by his perfect son's obedience. That if there ever was a time when the father was more pleased with his son, it was on the cross because his son offered up a perfect sacrifice to appease, to satisfy, to expiate his wrath and justice. Friends, this is our Christ. That though your sin may be great, you have such a greater Savior. Don't ever think that your sin is big enough for God's, uh, God's Son, Jesus Christ's precious blood to cover over. That's the message that John gives to us. And if we were to summarize this message this morning, although a lot was said, I think the Apostle Paul sums it up best in Romans chapter 13, verses 13 through 14. He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensually, not in quarreling or jealously, but put on Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Take off your flesh and put on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If he is the one that you have said that has died for your sins, then you are no longer to walk in according to your sin. That's the message that John is saying to his uh, hearers. And that's the message that I hope that's conveyed. That none of us are exempt from sinning. That none of us are exempt from repenting of our sin. That all of us have fallen short of the grace of God and the mercy of, of the law of God. But the great news of the gospel is that the Father sends his Son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that is to live, die, and rise. And now he is currently at the right hand of, of the Father, making intercession. He is our great high priest, he is our surety. He is the one whom we can look to, who is our advocate, who pleads our case before the Father. That if we sin, that we do not walk and stay in darkness, but the Lord will be a light for us. That's the message of John in verses, in chapter 1, all the way down to chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 10. Let's pray.